Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello. Today, my guest is Sue Reed uh, from the Conservation Law Foundation. Sue is the Vice President of Conservation Law Foundation. Hello, Sue. Hi. And uh, where are you calling us from? I'm calling from the offices of Conservation Law Foundation in Boston in downtown Crossing neighborhood. And how are you? I'm wonderful, and you? <laughs> Good. Um, and I understand that you um, you live in Jamaica Plains, and um, how green is your transportation to work? Well, I guess that's a, a good question to ask of someone who counts their profession as uh, being an environmental advocate. My, I'm happy to report that my personal um, transportation is quite green. Um, I'm able to take advantage of the um, MBTA, known uh, fondly as the T system, um, the orange line in um, from Forest Hills to right to downtown crossing, and it allows me to uh, catch up on the day's news on my way in and my way back, um, all while, um, you know, producing much less pollution than if I were, say, in an individual car or something like that. And I understand you have a bit of a walk like I do. I do, and actually it's very refreshing, um, gets the blood circulating, the ideas flowing, and um, certainly some health benefits associated with that as well. My mom is 84, and she's losing some of her uh, short-term memory, or a lot of short-term memory, and so I was asking the doctor with her, what can one do? And the doctor said, um, better than doing mental exercises is to walk 20 minutes a day because the walking, I guess, just gets your circulation going and the blood pumping through your brain and everything else. And um, isn't it great that we can just do a simple thing like that and be taking care of ourselves? It is terrific. I think sometimes people are under um, a misunderstanding that things that um, we need to do to reduce air and water pollution also entail a lot of sacrifice and things that you don't want to do. And it's interesting to see people, as they get out of their cars, um, commute and, and run their errands more on foot or on bicycle or public transportation, spending more time getting exercise while they're um, taking care of their, their daily needs there are actually a lot of health benefits to that as well. And certainly um, I've experienced that personally, and my colleagues um, see a lot of that in their advocacy for uh, more healthy forms of transportation that work for the environment and for people. Hmm. Recent uh, studies a few years ago found that people living in urban areas compared to people living in suburbia were seven pounds lighter on average, presumably because they were walking more than people living out there where they drive everywhere. Yes, we we see that kind of data continue to play itself out, and I think um, it's part of the phenomenon that um, is, um, at this point in time, driving people who are in later stages of their careers and lives uh, moving back into urban areas because they can walk to everything that they need, and it's healthier. Um, it helps address the obesity epidemic in a meaningful way um, and uh, is an overall part of a um, piece of the picture in terms of building health your communities. And has Conservation Law Foundation been involved with the urban development going around Kendall Square where they've been building less and parking, I mean building more and parking less? 
Well, I would say on a, a, the very highest levels, Conservation Law Foundation is focused on all of the most pressing environmental problems that face um, New England as a whole, and we have offices in each of the states. And so I personally have worked a lot in Massachusetts, and a lot of the policies, both through the legislature um, and through administrative um, rules and programs and so forth, have been focused on setting the stage for exactly these kinds of transformations, trying to level the playing field um, and provide incentives and foster these new approaches to getting people from home to work that don't entail reliance on individual automobiles. Um, and it allows for more people to get into dense urban areas um, with less pollution and, and, frankly, a lot less stress as well in most instances. Yeah, and we're seeing a paradigm shift in developers where in, uh, as the biggest the greatest change has been in, in the MIT area of Cambridge, Kendall Square, where they've been building more, um, bringing more people in and providing less parking and still have happy people. And that depends on a lot of different pieces coming together at the same time, and that includes looking again at our transportation systems and, you know, the next time we're repaving any particular roadway, looking at how we might reconfigure it so that you provide the space that's needed for um, biking to be safer. And so I think the efforts that have been made in Cambridge and other communities to really set aside bike lanes and provide that space and room have fostered this ability of people to more comfortably and safely get around on bicycle. And that's built up this pent up, um, or it's, it's helped meet this pent-up demand um, that we're really seeing play out in, in certain communities like in Kendall Square, and it, it dovetails with some tremendous high-tech um, energy and development that's, that's going on there. Yeah, I live in Somerville and ride my bike to the office here in Cambridge, and uh, right after Governor Patrick was elected, I was going around to city meetings saying, look, guys, if you want more businesses, put out a bike parking you know, rack near your business so that those of us on bicycles can park and shop. And lo and behold, clearly some folks were listening and, and actually followed up. And They really uh, have. I think it's really exciting. I take great pride in what I've brought happened to the city and stuff. But, and the um, more we see real-world examples like that, the more other communities, the light bulb goes off. I guess the compact fluorescent or uh, LED light bulb, bulb goes, goes off, off. And, and they catch on and they realize this is something that works. And we have a bike program now where people can walk out of the subway and, and swipe their card and hop on a bike. It's terrific. Yeah, the Hubway system that's been spe uh, expanding throughout um, greater Boston, um, really dramatically defying expectations and really helping fill, again, a pent-up need, um, moving people around without this dependence on, on the car and, and more of what we refer to as multimodal transportation, so people walking to the train, taking the train, hopping on a bicycle, um, and moving themselves around more efficiently in a more healthy way and with far less pollution. Yeah, that's the amazing thing. It's more healthy for us. I mean, we just feel better riding the bike than driving the car. I mean, it's just amazing what it does for one's soul. Yes, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Oh, I know. You're the example. That's what we started with, with your <laughs> mile walk to the train station. Um, Literally walking the walk, yes. <laughs> no, walking the talk. Sorry. Um, <laughs> let's, um, so climate change is the issue these days, and... Um, what is being done, and what should we be doing to further address uh, climate change in addition? And we'll get back to the transportation stuff later in the program, but in addition to that. 
Sure. Well, fortunately, a lot is going on in Massachusetts in particular. Um, just a few years ago, Massachusetts passed what is the most ambitious um, greenhouse gas emission reduction measure in the nation. And greenhouse gases, of course, are um, the central cause of climate change. And we're starting to see more and more of the effects of climate change as we um, encounter these really intense storms. Um, Irene from last year, of course, Superstorm Sandy um, from, from this year with devastating impacts. And Massachusetts, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that the country as a whole is so far behind the ball and really grappling with its addiction to very carbon-intensive energy resources, but Massachusetts has taken bold steps to get the right laws on the books to ratchet down our own emissions and at the same time promote dramatic economic development opportunity and public health benefits by getting off of this fossil fuel economic roller coaster of dependence on these resources, oil and coal and so forth, that come from outside of Massachusetts. We don't have any of them here. We're spending billions of dollars um, often to send to hostile nations. And finally, Massachusetts has the tools on its books to reverse that trend and instead invest in local, locally available, clean, renewable energy technology and energy efficiency um, measures that in many instances are delivering dramatic economic returns directly into consumers' pockets as well as promoting jobs, reducing um, the health impacts of reliance on dirty fossil fuels, and really confronting um, in a meaningful way the, pro- the root causes of the problem of climate change. Mm. Mm. Now, Conservation Law Foundation was started by, among other people, Doug Foy, who left your esteemed institution to help Governor Romney put in a greenhouse gas regional initiative, the, the Reggie program? Yes. So, well, <laughs> there was a, a mixed history there. So the Romney administration... No, what's good about the Reggie program? Yes. Yeah, what is the, the Reggie program? The Romney administration in the early days, um, and, and certainly um, Doug Foy played a significant role here, um, worked very collaboratively with the governor's administrations throughout the Northeast region, nine different states, to get in place um, a, a requirement to um, cap and then gradually reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from all of the electric power plants in the region. So just that sector, not touching transportation and buildings and so forth. But this is, you know, a concrete, far-reaching, significant contributing source, and to do it on a regional basis. Now, the tail end of the Romney administration, actually, the governor opted out and did not actually sign on the bottom line and join the program that the administration had had helped to develop. Um, and it took the new governor, Governor Patrick, the then new governor, um, several years ago, um, to actually bring Massachusetts finally into the fold, but that was a really important start of setting up what is known as a cap-and-trade program to cap emissions across an entire sector, in that case, um, the electric um, generation sector, and to gradually ratchet down over time and to take the revenues from selling basically permits to pollute, permits to emit greenhouse gas emissions, and investing that revenue into energy efficiency so that the program not only is designed to reduce emissions, but also to invest in the cheapest, cleanest energy resource, which is reducing consumption of electricity across the board by using energy much more efficiently and avoiding waste of energy. 
And it was very effective to the point that when uh, Governor Patrick was running for re-election, his challenger, you know, tried to get points by saying he would undo Reggie without realizing that there was significant money that was being held by the states, right, for this whole program. Right, He wasn't about right. to give that back or something, but... And um, there's been substantial independent analysis by esteemed economists demonstrating across the board that Massachusetts ratepayers, because the state has made such a strong commitment to investing those pollution um, permit um, revenues um, into energy efficiency, that Massachusetts ratepayers are saving money across the board by participating fully in this program. We still have challenges ahead um, because um, as Natural gas has become very cheap. A lot of our coal plants have curtailed their operation because they're just not economic and can't compete in the market. So as it turns out, we have in the region reduced greenhouse gas emissions from the power generation sector far more than was required by the REGI, a regional greenhouse gas initiative program as designed. So the challenge now is to recalibrate that program to account for that changed reality and actually bring it bring down the, the, the cap. Well, that's a great point. Um, we're going to take a break uh, and think about Reggie offline, I guess. And uh, my guest is uh, Sue Reed, and we'll be right back after this break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. 
Hi, we're talking about actions being taken to address climate change, and my guest is Sue Reed, Vice President of Conservation Law Foundation. Uh, Sue, how can people learn more about uh, your organization and what you're doing and stuff? Well, that's very easy. You can find out lots of information about Conservation Law Foundation and all of our projects, including our work to confront the most pressing challenge of our day, climate change, at www.clf, as in Conservation Law Foundation, dot O-R-G, www.clf.org. Great. And um, I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting uh, site uh, with a number of unfolding projects happening there, uh, links to news items. Uh, I've worked a lot for years on Conservation Law Foundation on, on the fishery issues and, and ocean conservation, and uh, it's really great to have a chance to talk about this climate change problem and more about you know how we can help our environmental agencies and address uh, transportation opportunities too. Uh, we were talking before the break about, um, you know, what's being done to address climate change, and um, and and in particular, we didn't really get to, you know, will this government have the resources to to address these problems? Well, that's a very good question, Rob. So, as I mentioned, Massachusetts has set out the most ambitious greenhouse gas reduction mandate in the country, a requirement to reduce emissions to 25% below where they were in 1990 by 2020 and at least 80% below 1990 levels by 2050. And the law also required setting up a plan for how we get there from where we are now. What are the different policies and programs we need to have in place as well as a requirement to lay out um, regulations to ensure that we ratchet down greenhouse gas emissions um, over time. And that takes resources. It takes a concerted commitment from diverse um, members of um, the community, including environmental advocates, business stakeholders, government stakeholders, but there's no question that government needs to play a very key role in this. And two things I would like to say to to add to that. One is that um, Massachusetts has the right law on the books but has not yet taken some of the key action that it needs to in order to implement this Global Warming Solutions Act law. So the Department of Environmental Protection, known as MassDEP, um, is required to establish regulations to ensure that we're not building um, new infrastructure that's going to make the problem worse, um, to ensure that we are gradually phasing out existing infrastructure that's part of the problem, that we're making smarter decisions across the board in terms of our public and private infrastructure so that we're neither making the climate change problem worse nor failing to account for things like sea level rise and increasing temperatures. So that's a major undertaking, but Massachusetts DEP hasn't yet done its job. It was supposed to put out regulations by January 1 of this year. They're supposed to go into effect January 1 of 2013. They have not put out those regulations. So there's a role for people to reach out to the governor, to Massachusetts DEP, to call on the agency to get that job done. At the same time, this is not an excuse by any means, um, because this is a very pressing priority, the agency has been whacked by budget cuts. And um, this is one of many ways in which I think, you know, we're seeing the agency doesn't have 
all of the resources that it may need to get all of its jobs done. Mm. So over the last four or five years alone, we've seen um, dramatic cuts in, in Massachusetts DEP's budget from somewhere around 1,200 employees um, that were um, supported within the agency to about 800 in the last few years alone. Um, and, and across the board, push by the agency to privatize agency functions, um, so outsourcing the agency's responsibilities, um, sort of streamlining permitting, which means cutting out public participation, a lot of things that are deeply troubling from the perspective of um, public interest stakeholders who want and need to see the agency still upholding its core environmental protection and enforcement functions while taking on significant new challenges with respect to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and, and taking care of this mandate that I've mentioned through the Global Warming Solutions Act. Right. Now, if you think if, if greenhouses had less beans in them, would they give out less gas? <laughs> I don't know. Good question. And we certainly, uh, there, there's certainly a place for more uh, local agriculture in the mix. Um, I think people would, uh, you know, find it astonishing how far, if they really thought about it, how much energy goes into moving food around the globe to, uh, you know, keep strawberries on our table in New England in the middle of winter. Um, so right, there, right. There is Can you back up a bit and tell us a bit about what are the greenhouse gases that um, these are not fumes coming out of glass buildings. This is uh, what are the gases that we have to regulate? Sure. Well, one of the principal gases is carbon dioxide, um, and that is released in great volumes when we burn things like coal and oil um, and natural gas um, to generate electricity. So yep. we have a series of power plants throughout the New England region that are all um, called on to varying degrees um, to keep those electrons flowing, keep the lights on, our refrigeration, everything that runs on electricity. So that's a major source. Another significant source is methane, and um, one of the things that Conservation Law Foundation um, has recently been working on is looking at our leaking old pipes. So a lot of homes are hooked up to natural gas for heating um, and cooking, um, and a number of our, quite a few of our power plants um, are running on natural gas. It's become very cheap. Um, you know, I think you'd need multiple other hours carbon. of conversation to focus on the hydraulic fracturing going on in Marcellus Shale and why it's cheap. But um, right. natural gas um, still has, even in, when used in, in a power plant, half of the greenhouse gas emissions of coal. And when it's leaking from these old pipes, decades old pipes, sometimes over 100 years old, we even have wooden natural gas pipes in some instances in Boston that still exist. When that methane is leaking into the atmosphere, it has 25 times as much horrible punch as CO2 um, in terms of uh, contributing to the problem of climate change. So we really need right, to focus on the chemistry. Gas. The methane molecule is 20 times bad or worse than the carbon dioxide molecule. Is exactly. that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. So, and, so there's so, no silver bullet in terms of addressing this problem because we generate greenhouse gas emissions in connection with electric generation, in connection with heating, in connection with transportation. That's the biggest sector. Well, so, so what does DEP need money for? They have to go after all these things, or um, you know, so the DEP needs funding to address what parts of carbon dioxide and what parts of methane, and you know, let's get a sense of why they need money. 
Well, DEP still does have hundreds of um, talented individuals on staff, and so um, I do not mean to suggest that DEP needs more money in order to specifically do this job of addressing greenhouse gas emissions. It needs more money to, in aggregate, handle all of its responsibilities in terms of confronting, you know, individual industrial facilities that are not complying with their water discharge permits and sending right. toxic Checking pollutants. Right, compliance issues, yes. Yeah, and, and existing waste sites and cleaning up brownfields in, in urban districts and so forth. There are a host of different functions that DEP needs to um, maintain across the board. This is one um, significant element of that, and they certainly have some talented staff members who can work on um, designing and implementing rules to address greenhouse gas emissions from each of these sectors. Now, I would think that um, DEP is the principal agency that deals with permitting air emissions from new and existing power plants. Um, they have less of a role in the transportation sector in most instances, but they have great partners they can work with in the Massachusetts Department of Transportation to work right. collaboratively to um, come up with the best strategies, rules, and so forth to ratchet down emissions in that sector. So we have two lead agencies, the Department of Environmental Protection and the Department of Transportation. And the Department of Environmental Protection is addressing climate change issues, specifically the greenhouse gases of carbon dioxide and methane, but they also have responsibilities for other environmental issues, such as uh, pollution caused by uh, brownfields and uh, what all. Yeah, you, you've come close to hitting the nail on the head. So um, the law establishes Massachusetts DEP singularly um, as having the responsibility for um, setting up regulations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across all sectors. And what I'm suggesting is that in the specific context of transportation, DEP has a ready partner available with substantial expertise at yes. Massachusetts Department of Transportation to work hand-in-hand -hand with them, but it's really DEP's job. Right, to address the, the uh, greenhouse gas aspects of transportation. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and, and again, together with um, all of the other functions that, that DEP undertakes, and um, the agency is also working on, a, for example, a clean energy results program to try and um, build up um, deployment of renewable energy, for example, solar projects on closed landfills. So they're working um, right now on some of the solution side of the equation. What really seems to be missing is focusing on directly confronting the sources of emissions on the problems. Yes. But so I, there, there really is an opportunity and a role for um, concerned residents of, of Massachusetts um, to reach out to the Patrick administration and call for this action and to reach out to the legislature. I think these things do go hand in hand. If the agency um, had greater resources, um, you know, it, it certainly would have greater capacity um, to be able to address all of these functions, including reducing greenhouse gas emissions and it's really abysmal that in Massachusetts, I believe we're either last or second to last in the nation in terms of the percentage of our total state budget that goes toward the environmental agencies. That's yes. abysmal. We have such strong public support for environmental protection 
Um, and that, that it's been a, a downward trend, a very alarming trend, and it's something we need to dramatically reverse. And so there's also a role for reaching out to the legislature to say, hey, look, there's a big disconnect here between what the people want, what the people need, um, and the resources that are actually being given to these particular agencies. And it's about um, public health as much as it's about the, the environment. And we shouldn't be shocked when health care costs are crippling our state and federal budgets if we're not investing in reducing air and water pollution that are making people sick. Right. So if people want to reach out and call for reducing information on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, they can go to your website, right, at CRF.org? Absolutely. And if people want to affect legislative changes, then they should go to the Massachusetts League of Environmental Voters, since that's the political arm, um, and that's MLEV.org as well. So we'll be right back. Environmental League of Massachusetts as well has also played a key role. Yes. Yes. Um, So you want to work with C3s and C4s, um, and yes. Uh, So we'll be right back after this break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm talking with Sue Reed, and we've been talking about uh, the actions being taken to address climate change in Massachusetts. Uh, part of that is to address uh, greenhouse gases like mostly carbon dioxide and methane, 
um, how the state can do more to manage that. Uh, we also looked broad, broadly at some of the environmental challenges that state agent, the state agencies, the Department of Environmental Protection, is dealing with, and how it has to do a juggling act between all the different demands and diminishing resources. And Sue was pointing out that at least in the climate change response, there's some great collaborative work they can do and are doing with the Department of Transportation. Um, and and so let's we started the program with uh, Sue coming to work and how green her transportation was. Um, but overall, transportation has got some challenges before it, doesn't it? Yes, there's no question that this is um, one of the most difficult areas to tackle in terms of greenhouse gas emissions for a variety of reasons, including that transportation is the largest and still growing sector of producing greenhouse gas emissions as we have um, more people, um, more drivers, um, more people needing to get around. Um, it's not terribly surprising that this is the case. And we really, for all practical purposes in terms of vehicles, have essentially one really, really dominant fuel, and that's oil. And it's dirty. Um, it's very carbon intensive. Um, at the same time, there are a lot of financial challenges in terms of supporting, sustaining, and making more reliable and affordable our public transportation systems. Um, and that piece of the equation is essential in terms of um, enabling people to get out of their cars, um, to take more climate-friendly, if you will, forms of transportation and know that they're going to be able to get to their jobs on time or pick up their kids from school or whatever it may be. I think we are very fortunate in Boston to have um, one of the nation's oldest transportation systems, and by and large, it works phenomenally well. But you can see that it's fraying at the seams, um, and the financial picture is, um, to be candid, pretty bleak. Um, in 2014 alone, the um, MBTA, as it's known, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, um, which runs these train systems, is facing an operating budget deficit of $130 million. It's just for that one year. Um, at the same time, roads and bridges um, are facing an operating budget gap of $240 million. The regional transit authorities that run more of the bus systems have a gap of at least $125 million. And there's a maintenance backlog for the MBTA that runs the trains of somewhere between $3.5 and $4.5 billion right now. Those are big numbers, especially when there are other budget issues that need to be addressed, including, as I mentioned, health care costs. So this is a major challenge. It is a um, major, and, uh, major challenge. One of the problems in Boston is that the public transportation serves some communities so much better than others, and usually the low-income communities have difficulty being able to rely on the public transportation, so they end up having to drive cars. And, um, and yet for the public transportation to address that would require even more purchasing of equipment and stuff. That's right. And, you know, there's something profoundly unjust um, with respect to, um, depending on where you live, um, not having access to reliable public transportation. There are neighborhoods in, in Boston where 
these trains, many of them diesel-fired trains that have some pollution, are cutting through these neighborhoods, and the people in those communities have no access to those systems that pass right by. They're forced to take a series of um, buses that are slower moving, for example, to cover similar or smaller distances as some of the folks who are coming in from the suburbs or more affluent communities in Boston taking public transportation. So while this is very much um, an element of the climate debate and something that needs to be solved in connection with the climate equation, it's also a social, social justice issue and a question of just basic equities and fairness. It's huge. It's really bad because I've, I've met youth in the South End and in Dorchester, you know, who they get out of school at 2.30 and they want to go to work and the buses are slow to come and when it comes, the bus might see a, a couple of youth standing there and decide they don't want to stop for those guys um, for whatever reason and so it's just really fun. And then the employer says the guys aren't turning up for work, and it just is, is really, really frustrating for uh, people who are trying to be responsible and hold it together um, with this current system. Right, right. There's some really poignant examples, and I think that speaks to the need both to um, maintain and restore some of our existing systems, but we ultimately, and hopefully not too far down the road, need to expand them so that we're serving more communities, both in inner city neighborhoods as well as out beyond Boston and other parts of the state, connecting um, Fall River, New Bedford, Springfield, and so forth, um, different communities. But we got to take care of the existing system, and we need to do some strategic expansions within the urban core um, as matters of a very high priority, and, and that's where we're facing this budget challenge. I am very encouraged with respect to um, the broad swath of stakeholders who have come together to collectively um, press for solutions. So it ranges from, say, the Green Justice Coalition, Community Labor United, the T-Riders Union. We work very closely um, with a stakeholder group known as Transportation for Massachusetts, or T4MA, but also big corporate and municipal stakeholders. So the Massachusetts Competitive Partnership, the Mass Tax Payers Foundation, the Mass Municipal Association. So these are, um, in many instances, very unlikely partners. Don't always work hand-in-hand with environmental and social justice advocates, but all recognizing collectively this urgent need and spurring our highest level leaders in the Commonwealth to prioritize fixing this seemingly intractable problem. Yes. So I'll follow on that. That's pretty thorough. Um, <laughs> well, we're we're really encouraged that Governor Patrick um, has made very clear that this is a pi- priority now um, and coming into 2013. This is 2013 will be a huge year for figuring out transportation finance and. I don't expect to see um, public transportation singled out on its own because we have other pressing needs with respect to um, decaying infrastructure, with respect to roads and bridges, and we really need to address these issues on a Massachusetts-wide basis. But it's very encouraging that the governor has strongly indicated that this is a priority for his administration, and the same is true for Senate President Therese Murray as well as Speaker of the House Robert DeLeo. And so I think it's going to take that 
that collective leadership commitment plus the collective will of all of these stakeholders I've mentioned and many more um, to get us um, over this um, tough hurdle in terms of finding the resources to solve this problem um, and doing it in short order. But I have a high level of optimism given the commitment across the board that it's going to happen in 2013. Well, it's great to hear you say that because Conservation Law Foundation was there in the beginning and there all along, you know, pushing for public transportation. And as one who lives in Somerville, it's very encouraging to see forward momentum on extending the Green Line into Somerville to Union Square and beyond, uh, perhaps all the way into Medford. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a tribute to what you guys have been doing since the beginning. Every time a development project comes up that could include uh, public transportation, CLF is there saying, be sure to include it. That's true. Certainly, Conservation Law Foundation, um, before my time, played a really important role with respect to um, ensuring that when the Big Dig project was going through and setting the stage for bringing a lot more vehicles right through Boston um, by, on some level, um, reducing that juggernaut or cutting through that that, um, bottleneck um, through downtown Boston, encouraging more people to get on the road because there's a wider um, uh, path through the city by road, um, we were there fighting for the protections that exist under federal law, the Clean Air Act, um, and uh, those protections ultimately manifest themselves through commitments to expand our public transportation system. And the Green Line extension um, out to Medford is one of the key elements of that. Um, there are also um, new stops put in along the Fairmount line um, that um, have opened up access. There used to be um, flag stops with our train systems that people yeah. in, in some of these neighbors had to go out and literally stand on a hill and wave at the train and hope the train was going to stop. Well, that's now translating into through these commitments into stations that you know people can use reliably, not going out in, in often foul weather, hoping that the conductor's going oh, to see gosh. them and actually stop a moving train. Oh, my that gosh. was not realistic. And, you know, the uh, new Assembly Square stop on the Orange Line, and, uh, in fact, the whole Silver Line was pretty much built out of the Big Dig. Yep, and there's still there's more work to be done. The Silver Line was not originally envisioned um, as a bus route as opposed to a train line. Um, you know, the the buses certainly do face some of the um, bottlenecks um, when traffic is heavy heading out to uh, Logan Airport in particular. But it has dramatically improved access to Logan. It has cut down in terms of the number of people driving and individual cars out there. So we see this progress incrementally, and we need to sustain it. Um, and and yeah, hopefully and the accelerate the pace of it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm sorry, I cut off the last sentence there. Um, I was suggesting that not only do we need to sustain it, we need to accelerate the pace of it um, because uh, we, we need action that um, corresponds to the level of urgency of the climate threat. And again, while we're also uh, addressing these um, built-in inequities in terms of access to reliable, cleaner um, public forms of, of transportation, um, but there, there's a level of urgency there. And again, I'm um, really encouraged by seeing um, that reflection in some of the um, very public rhetoric and commitments from some of our highest level leaders in, in the Commonwealth. Excellent. So that's really excellent. Well, on that good note, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back for the final segment with Sue Reed from Conservation Law Foundation.
stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. covered a lot about uh, acting locally to, you know, here in Massachusetts, uh, but most of our listeners are outside of Massachusetts, and uh, perhaps you can tell us a bit about what's happening at the federal level. Well, I think um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, I think there are um, some other topics, that obviously, of uh, central uh, discussion and right in the spotlight, including the, the fiscal cliff and um, gun control as well, um, but... We remain encouraged with respect to um, the shifting that was pretty palpable um, just a few weeks ago um, in the wake of Superstorm Sandy um, and, you know, a devastating, devastating storm like that, incredible human toll, incredible economic toll, um, that although memories are often um, far too fleeting in terms of, um, you know, seizing the momentum, seizing the urgency out of events like Hurricane Katrina, like um, the storm Irene that did so much damage in New England last year, um, that the um, effects of, of that storm of Sandy um, and the change in some of the public dialogue is something that I think we still will be able to return to after we get beyond the most hot-button debates on Capitol Hill right now. Um, you know, and this is, it's a bipartisan issue. It's something that affects all of us. Um, collectively, the nation is starting to see the real costs, again, both human and economic, 
um, in terms of not doing enough to address, not doing by any measure anywhere near enough to address climate change. Um, I think the, the raw dollars that are being talked about in terms of Sandy's impacts are in excess of $100 billion. Um, and that's a stark reality. And so now um, not just the environmental community, um, not just insurers who have long been um, a significant voice on taking action because they've seen the level of risk and exposure, but across party lines, we see Mayor Bloomberg really stepping up the pressure um, and other major corporate and other interests um, uh, putting this um, toward the forefront of the agenda of what we have to tackle in short order. And it, there's been a shift in dialogue, some very interesting, you know, Tea Party interests and others talking now about openness to a carbon tax. Well, that's a major change in the dialogue. And I think there are a lot of us in the environmental community that are pretty agnostic as to what the actual tool um, is used, is adopted on Capitol Hill, whether it's a carbon tax or cap and trade or any other mechanism. The bottom line is we need something effective. We need something that is equitable, and we need something now. Um, and, um, again, the shift in the dialogue, we believe, creates an opportunity um, to actually take action um, in short order. We hope this year on Capitol Hill um, to move beyond. We, we came kind of close with the Waxman-Markey bill a couple years back um, to address climate change, but the United States is such a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions. We're bearing directly the impacts. We're exporting a lot of the impacts to the rest of the world, and it is high past time for the nation to take action. And it's, um, you know, fortunately a time where a lot more people are recognizing that across the board. Well, that's very exciting because, you know, America is only 4% of the world population, but we're 20% of the greenhouse gas carbon footprint problem. And, you know, what people, individuals can do is many things to reduce their carbon footprint, and, and that is in its culmination making a difference. However, uh, it's very encouraging to hear that as a result of Sandy and, and the, the Times that people, are, that government is thinking also about addressing carbon uh, buildup uh, if only by a carbon tax. Exactly. And, you know, as people go about hopefully getting their free energy audits, at least in many Massachusetts and many other states, weatherizing their homes, finding healthier and cleaner forms of transportation, another key um, item that should be on everybody's to-do list is to reach out to your public officials who are your voice on Capitol Hill, your um, congressmen, your senators, and um, press them for action that were inertia and inaction just aren't an answer um, to the reality that we're facing, and it's a delightful time. Let's not only have the conversation, but take action on finally setting aside these fossil fuel subsidies. Why on earth are we giving billions of dollars to fossil fuel companies to make the problem worse, both in terms of climate change and in terms of public health? These companies are some of the richest in the world. They don't need this money. Um, so while we're staring at this fiscal cliff and, um, you know, a, a pretty dramatic need to um, sort of uh, address the, the deficit. Why isn't that some of the lowest hanging fruit? It really needs to be, and I think right. again we're seeing the voices step up to push back on on that. That's low hanging fruit. We have tougher challenges ahead on Capitol Hill and beyond, but 
at, at a minimum, we need to seize that, and, and we need to have the conversation and get something in place this year with respect to comprehensively addressing greenhouse gas emissions across the board at a federal level. And a tax, would that be of individuals, or could people, is it an optional kind of thing? Well, there are a bunch of different ways that a carbon tax um, could be um, established, and it could be, you know, something that you would pay, for example, at the pump. It could be something that's done at a wholesale or, you know, higher up the food chain level. Um, I think no matter what, there's you can't um, bury it. You're not going to avoid the reality that um, consumers will need to um, step up to the plate if there's a carbon tax, and there will be higher costs associated with um, consuming the kinds of goods and fuels um, that create more of the problem of climate change. But the delightful delightful news is that we have so many clean alternatives, and so part of what a carbon tax would do would send a signal so that consumers out in the marketplace can make better informed choices and avoid paying carbon tax because you want to stay away from those dirty things. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds like a wonderful solution that, you know, if people choose to pollute, they can pay the piper. And if they, um, you know, can be creative in ways to uh, get to work and, and go on living without incurring increased, you know, fuel costs or whatever, that's uh, saving them in the pocketbook as well as avoiding a tax. Sure. And I think what people often forget is we're actually paying for all of these impacts already. We're already paying a carbon tax in the form of paying for the damage by Superstorm Sandy, by paying for increased health care costs because of um, higher temperatures that are oppressing people right, that are right. um, but, spreading so let me invasive and remind tests. you of the benefits we started the program with, that by avoiding, you know, driving to the train station, walking um, has health benefits. And so not only are we, do we stop already paying, we are better off by practicing a more uh, carbon-free, you know, greenhouse gas, less greenhouse gas polluting lifestyle. Exactly. And we certainly feel very strongly that in confronting these problems, we actually can set up um, healthier communities and an economy that is more sustainable and is healthier so that it helps us economically from a public health perspective and from an environmental perspective that we don't need to choose between public health and the environment and between having the goods and services we need to thrive and be happy and productive um, citizens of, of the United States that we can have both. And I think the, you know, big oil and big coal try to set up a false choice for us and we should reject that false choice. Um, we have a right to healthy lives. Exactly. We, we deserve, you know, healthy lives, and we expect government to uh, enable us to have our, you know, natural right to health. Exactly. Exactly. Certainly, I expect no less from um, all of the public officials who represent me locally at the state level and federally. And I hope that that's true for all of your listeners. Oh, I'm sure it's for the public officials. They all, most of them, they're all family people, and they all care about getting more health for their families and themselves. And and we need people like you and Conservation Law Foundation to show us the ways, help us get over the hump. I mean, a lot of these changes. Our, our initial changes that are threatening at first, but once we get over that change, there are benefits that, that make it all worthwhile. And it's just taking that initial first step. Um, exactly. Sue Reed, uh, Vice President of Conservation Law Foundation, thank you for coming on the show today.
Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure. And for all of you listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, thank you so much. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.